All right, all right. Well, thank you so much for being here this morning. It is so good to have you. And uh, if this is your first time with us, we want you to feel especially welcome. We're grateful for you today. And really, you couldn't have picked a better day to be a part of our services, uh, uh, especially this morning, because a few weeks ago, like Sharon mentioned, we began a brand new series of messages called Stress Less. And we began this series because stress has really become a pretty normal part of most people's routine, especially in Silicon Valley. And I think that sometimes the stress that we experience is often self-inflicted type of stress. It's the type of stress where we've set so many unrealistic, unrealistic expectations that we ourselves can't even live up to those expectations. Other times, I think the stress we experience is caused by sometimes external circumstances outside of our control, whether it's relationships or our work environment or perhaps our home life. So the goal, though, in this next series is really to begin coming to a place where we understand the stress in our life from a different perspective. I think the main problem with this type of of lifestyle that we experience is that it looks so vastly different from the type of life that we read about in the Bible. Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. And so as this series moves forward, we're going to see that it is as much about learning how to stress less as it is embracing the type of abundant life that the Bible says that God has for every single one of us. In the first week, we talked about how we can overcome anxiety with prayer, and it's not necessarily that God will take away the anxiety that we experience, but prayer somehow allows for God to reveal the source of anxiety in our life, and then we can address it. Last week, we talked about how to distinguish between the urgent and the important, and this was a significant breakthrough, probably for many of us, because part of Living a life that is given to the urgent means that we are going to oftentimes be left feeling tired and overwhelmed. But a life that answers to the important oftentimes produces value and worth, and Jesus is always at the center of the ladder. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about the screens, the screens that we so often feel connected to. It was only a few years ago that I realized or maybe came to the realization that we are living in a vastly different communication era within human history. And this is how it came to my realization. My wife and I went out to dinner, and we went to a restaurant, and I started to look around at everyone else in the restaurant and noticed that the majority of people were on their phones. It was a crazy, crazy phenomenon. And so then I finished texting my wife, and I said, look at all these weird people on their phone. And she texted me back, and she says, I know, right? LOL. And she really didn't laugh. No, that didn't happen. But it did happen where I realized that everyone, when we were sitting in a restaurant, they were sitting across the table from their friends or from their family members, and a majority of people were sitting there doing something on their phone. And it's an interesting phenomenon to think about. And so today, I don't normally title my message is, but today I'm giving it a title, and we're calling it something really provocative, How Not to Let 
your screen strangle your soul. Now, not to let your screen strangle your soul. And so today, to do that, we're going to be in the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. We're going to be reading out of one of the letters that Paul wrote to one of the early, early churches in the uh, New Testament era, the church of Ephesus. And uh, the letter to the Ephesians is also known as the book of Ephesians. And so Ephesus was a really large city during that time. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul, the Apostle Paul, had this really engaging ministry that took place in the city. And so a few years after Paul was in a Roman prison, he wrote this letter to the Ephesians with two main points. The first point of this letter, the entire letter, is Paul exploring how all of human history came to its climax in the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the second point is how this good news should flow out into every part of our life, how the reality of Jesus' sacrifice should manifest itself in the way that we behave, in the way that we live, in the way that we talk. And really, the church is not primarily about behavior modification, but we do believe that when you embrace the truth and the reality of Jesus, it does begin to modify the way we act and the way that we behave. And so the big idea of this entire letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians was this idea of taking off the old humanity, the old life, and putting on the new life, the abundant life, the meaningful life that is offered in a relationship with Jesus. And so the passage that we're looking at today is going to be one that offers a lot of practical advice to the community in Ephesus. And so we'll be reading out of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Or if you have your screen, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And if you don't have either of those, we'll have all the sentences on the screen right here. Beginning in verse 15, it says, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but, li but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. And so we see at the very beginning of this passage that Paul is warning this group about a particular behavior that he sees present in the community. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever, if you currently have uh, the type of friend who always offers you advice. I have that person in my life, and we met when I was at a season in life where I needed a lot of advice, but that was a long time ago, and I moved out of that season, and I don't need nearly as much advice around a particular topic as this person would like to give me. Um, and they're one of my best friends, and I love them so much, but the truth is, is that most of the advice that I get from this person is really, really good advice. It is usually very biblical advice. It's wise advice. And this is really the relationship that the Apostle Paul had with a lot of the people uh, in the letters that he was writing. He was always offering them advice and wisdom and understanding. And so there is, uh, this is exactly what he's offering to this community of faith here. And one of the things that I love about the Apostle Paul is that he's not afraid to speak directly to an issue that he sees can be a problem, especially when it comes to this community in Ephesus, because Paul spent more time investing in this church than most any other church that he invested, up up until, invested in up until this point. 
And so many of the people that he was actually writing this letter to were people that he had led into that relationship with God. And so in a lot of ways, Paul is viewing them as his spiritual children. And you really get the sense in this passage that he's speaking to them as sort of like this paternal figure in their life. And then he continues to share in verse 18. He says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. So in Paul's context, one uh, drunkenness was one of the behaviors that kept people from understanding what God had planned for their life. It was a huge distraction. And so when Paul said don't live foolishly or don't live thoughtlessly distracted from God's better purpose in your life, the thing that came to mind was this cultural epidemic of drunkenness. And so Paul is not saying that you cannot consume alcohol, and he's also not saying that you can only get drunk with wine, or you shouldn't only get drunk with wine, but you could get drunk with other forms of alcohol. But Paul is really generally speaking to this idea of drunkenness, and he says this consistent behavior of getting drunk will actually ruin your life. It was the cultural craze of that era. When we look at some of the cities that have the highest percentage of self-identified alcoholics, you will notice a few things in common. First is that oftentimes they are in college towns, and second, they're in metropolitan areas. And so this was a pretty good demographic. This, you know, these two demographics of a college town and a metropolitan area is a good picture of the city of Ephesus. And so it made sense in this context for Paul to be using this opportunity to address this particular issue of drunkenness. And what I love about Paul is he doesn't just identify the problem, but he also offers a next step. Instead of being filled, he says, continuing on in verse 18, he said, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul was suggesting, he says, don't waste your time getting drunk, but use the time that you have to come under the influence of God's Spirit in your life. And he gives us a few examples of how to do this. He says, you can sing together, which we just did, which is fun. The other option is you could sing alone, which for some of us who have good voice, actually for those of us who don't have good voices, it is more fun to sing alone than in public. And the other option was that you could express your gratitude to God. So he gives us a number of different options, but some of you are maybe thinking, what on earth does drunkenness have to do with technology? What are we talking about today? Well, I think that in Paul's perspective, he was addressing drunkenness as a cultural example of a greater truth that he's challenging people to embrace in this community. I think that if Paul was going to show up to the Silicon Valley and he would observe our behavior and observe our culture, if he would take a few trips on the light rail or on the trains, or maybe he would sit on a bus stop for a few minutes, one of the things that he would notice was an epidemic in our culture. He would wonder why so many people have these skinny little screens in front of their face and what they are doing on those screens. 
And so I think the big idea of this entire passage is at the very beginning of it where Paul says, be intentional about how you live. Be careful about how you live. Redeem the time. Don't waste your life. I think that we are getting to a time in our culture where we're beginning to realize that technology is having a far greater reach in our world than we ever intended or ever imagined was possible. And I love technology. I love how much it has improved the quality of my life. I love how much more productive it has allowed for me to be. I love the way that it invigorates innovative thinking. I love how it problem solves and overcomes so many challenges in our world. I love, I love, I love technology. And as a matter of fact, all of us love technology, right? Because technology isn't necessarily like these electronic devices, but technology is like this advancement that exists that never, that was developed but never exists before. And at some point in human history, clothes were part of that technological advancement. So all of us who are wearing clothes today, love technology in some form of an or another. And so what we realize is that technology is not the problem. Technology is not the issue. The issue is our human nature. And the problem with our human nature is that oftentimes when we identify something that is good in our life, we tend to continue to elevate it until we make it God in our life. We tend to push things that are good until we make it God. And I think when it comes to certain technological advancements, we have had an uncritical embrace without considering its effects. So I want to read a quote to you from uh, our church's blog. Some of you guys didn't know that we have a blog, but uh, usually with a lot of the messages that we have, we, we, uh, someone will write uh, a blog that's around the same topic, and, uh, and my wife happened to, to write this one uh, on the idea of the screens strangling our soul. And she says, we are dip, deeply immersed in the benefits of technology, and yet do we consider the depths of its reach into our lives? What is the cost of neglecting personal interaction with those around us because we're always busy on our devices? What is the toll of email pings, text messages, and social media updates constantly interrupting or precluding, precluding quality time together with those we love? How can we navigate the newfound expectation to be always connected to work? How can we work with concentration and focus when push notifications interrupt us every few minutes? And these are only the superficial costs. Consider the deeper realities. What will be the result when a child is accidentally exposed to inappropriate content online? How is a teen's self-esteem destroyed by perfectly filtered images on social media? What can a spouse do when their lover is consumed by an addiction to porn that's just a swipe away? How can adult respond with something other than apathy to every global crisis on their newsfeed? Sometimes we don't realize the far-reaching implications of technology into our life and into our mind and even into the psychology in which we operate. And so the question is, how do we live intentional with technology so that it doesn't suffocate or strangle our soul. The first is to call out the addiction. I know that this sounds like a really strong word, but the truth is that there are so many of us that are addicted to our screens 
and we don't even know it. Let me read to you one definition of addiction. It says, addiction usually refers to compulsive behavior that leads to negative effects. In most addictions, people feel compelled to do certain activities so often that they become harmful. They become a harmful habit, which then interferes with more other important activities such as work or school. So I want to read to you a few statistics that are generally true about the American population. It says that teenagers record 7 to 11 hours of media consumption a day. 21% of Facebook users report checking their Facebook account before they use the bathroom in the morning. Who's feeling guilty on that? The average teenager sends over 3,300 text messages a month. Half of young adults spend more time communicating with people on their screens than in person. The average American checks their phone once every 12 minutes. The average American checks their phone 80 times a day. 31% feel regular anxiety at any point when separated from their phone. 60% of people reported experiencing occasional stress when their phone is off or out of reach. I just got to know how many people have checked their phone throughout the course of this service so far. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But I think that this is sort of a crazy indication of how often and how connected, almost how dependent we are to our phone. It becomes so integral to the way that we operate because so much of what is tied to our screen is tied to how we operate throughout the course of our day. We have our emails. We have our social media accounts. We have text messages. We have these apps that count calories. And we have our workout apps. And we have all these things that everything about who we are is somehow tied to this little device that keeps drawing us back over and over again. And I feel like it's like this small little whisper when the phone is across the room, and it says, I have something important to tell you. I want you to know how important you are. You just posted something on Facebook. You want to know how many likes you have. Who's commented on your picture? Who's told you you look beautiful? Who's told you they love your scarf? Don't you feel like that inner emotional tug to this inanimate object and you feel like it constantly speaks deep to your soul i want to share a really really embarrassing story um, i don't know i mean this it's embarrassing as a nice way of describing it but this summer my family and i went on vacation and i realized that i have an addiction to my phone and so my wife also realized it she was always telling me get off your phone get off your phone get off your phone and so finally, we were planning to go on this vacation, and she said, Daniel, I want to challenge you to leave your phone at home. Don't even bring it with you. She said, Sharon and the team, they're going to take care of everything. You don't need to worry about anything. And if you need, absolutely need to contact someone in an emergency, I'll bring my phone, and you can borrow it. And I took a deep breath, and I said, okay, I'm going to leave my phone at my house turned off for four straight days. Okay? That's that's an accomplishment. And so throughout the, four, the course of the four days, I really felt like I was detoxing. There were times where like I would go in my bag to open up and grab my phone and it wasn't there. 
There were times where I would open up the center console, grab and reach for my phone. It wasn't there. Look for my pockets and remember my phone wasn't there. And over and over again, I thought about emailing people or writing to people or texting to people. And the whole time, every night that I would go to bed, I would think, oh my gosh, who could, I know someone's texted me and they need some really important information that only I have and they need and I need to make sure that I call them. And so there was one time I snuck in, uh, I checked my email and, uh, and I checked my voicemails. And surprise, surprise, there was not one important email or any bit of information. And so I realized that this was affecting me. But then we got back on a Saturday evening, and, and I had finally gotten my phone, and we're getting ready for church the next day, and guess what happened? I had an anxiety attack. And there were other issues going on at the time, but this was like, and I'm telling you, this is when I say embarrassing, that was a nice way of describing this entire event. But I went to bed, and I started feeling like my heart beating really, really fast. And so at 4 a.m. in the morning, I got up, and I drove myself to the emergency room, and I had an EKG done. It's not so funny anymore, is it? But it's crazy, right? It's crazy to think that not having a piece of technology could so adversely affect someone's life. And I realize that probably not all of you are tied to your phone to the degree that I am, but that was a huge wake-up call for me. That was a huge wake-up call. And I think that every single one of us probably have to identify our own traps when it comes to the screen. Is it pornography? Is it social media? Is it video games? Is it binge-watching TV shows to an unhealthy degree? Are we tied to our apps on our phone? Are we information junkies where we are constantly surfing the net? Are we glued to blogs all morning and all night long? If technology has quietly and seamlessly slithered its way into your bedroom and snuffed a little bit of life out of you, it might be more serious than you think. Number two, we want to curb the acidia. Acidia is an old word roughly equivalent to sloth or listlessness, and I love the way that this one author describes it. He says, far too many of us, sorry, too, sorry, for too many of us, the hustle and the bustle of electronic activity is a sad expression of a deeper acidia. We feel busy, but not with a hobby or recreation or play. We are busy with busyness. Rather than figure out what to do with our spare minutes and hours, we are content to swim in the shallows and pass our time with the passing of time. It is so crazy to think that we have all engaged in a life, or maybe we've given a good amount of our life to purposelessness disguised as constant commotion. Have you ever felt like you wanted to take a day off and you rested, but you spent the day watching YouTube vines? all day, and at the end of watching all these videos or all these movies, you didn't quite feel rested. That's what this is talking about. That you can long for rest, and even though you're not actively doing anything, you have also not actively rested. And so the way that we curb acidia is by cultivating healthy habits around our technology use. And I do want to say that it is not about an outright rejection of technology, but it is 
a deliberate and intentional planning. It is creating boundaries around how we engage with technology in our life. And so for some of us, the wisest thing to do is to limit our access to certain websites. For some of us, it's to limit our usage during certain times of the day. I know one CEO who doesn't have any apps on his phone so that he's not tied to it for any other purpose besides calling and receiving texts and communicating. I want to show you something that perhaps you guys have never seen before, depending on your age in the room. It is an ancient artifact um, that I came into contact with, and uh, this was one person's response to curbing the acidia in their life. They no longer wanted to have access to the mounds and mounds of information at their fingertips. And so one of the ways that they limited this access was with, uh, with coming into contact with one of these. I know some of you have only seen these in magazines, or maybe you've searched them on the internet, but this is called a dumb phone. And that means that this phone doesn't use any data, and you can't search the web or the internet on this thing. And I love it. And maybe that is the answer for some of us, right? To get a phone that doesn't even give you the chance to have access to all that information. One rhythm that I found really, really helpful is the rhythm of fasting from technology. And the fast looks like this. You fast one hour a day from all technology. You fast one day a week from all technology. And you fast one week a year from all technology, to just create these little rhythms in your life that give you a little bit of space from each of these interconnected moments, and you're being intentional about creating boundaries in your life around this topic. Finally, connect with others in community. Did you know that the primary thing we exchange for more time on the screen is the interpersonal relationships that we value most? And this happens in a few different ways. Directly and indirectly. Directly, we, when we're engaged on our phones, uh, we're not very good at engaging with other people. And the other indirect part is that when we are engaged in our phones, when we do engage with people, we are engaging with less of ourselves. Have you ever noticed how frustrating and annoying it is to talk to someone who's on their phone? It is so annoying. It is so frustrating. They're like watching something, and you know it's not as important as they think it is. And then... Isn't it so annoying and frustrating when someone's trying to talk to you when you're reading something really important on your phone? <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. But the goal is to connect with other people. The goal is to have relationships in your life that you value more than the habit of being on your phone. And one of the awesome things that we provide here as a community of faith is a community of wonderful people that build you up and push you forward in life. And we're intentional about that because we know how valuable these relationships are. And I love the fact that in just a few weeks, we are launching our Eden groups. And these groups are life-changing. We were part of a group this last uh, fall uh, called Alpha. And I remember how excited I was every Sunday night. It didn't matter how tired I was. It didn't matter how Sunday morning went. It didn't matter all the complexities of life because I knew that every Sunday night I was going to meet with a group of people that I loved deeply, that I knew loved me, and we were going to walk on this journey together of life and of faith. And it was such a powerful experience. And I know that, that I would never for one moment 
want to exchange a minute of that time for time on my phone. And so it is so important that we have community, communities of people that we are engaged with, that we are spending, doing life with, to the point where it becomes more important than the time we spend on our phones or on the screen. And I think really the most important thing when we talk about creating disciplines around this topic is realizing that in some ways, the time that we give to the screen or to technology can adversely affect even our relationship with God. Because sometimes it is a way for us to not deal with what's really going on in our lives. Sometimes it's easier to stay busy on the phone reading information that is essentially useless rather than exploring what is really happening inside of us at this season. I want to read to you this last quote by a man, by, his name is Peter Kreeft. He said, we want to complexify our lives. We don't have to, we want to. We want it to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very things we complain about. For if we had leisure, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. I think the deeper issue with being busy with our phone is that it has given us easy access to distract ourselves from what is really happening in our hearts. It's become an easy outlet, an easy avenue to not really settle down in the peace and in the quietness of our day and to, to hear what God is saying to us. This entire passage, this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians was about how wonderful and beautiful the person of Jesus is and how in him we can experience a life that is transformed. And it's about what the Bible calls the gospel. It's also translated as the good news. And what is so good about what Jesus offers is that it releases us from slavery, from the slavery of sin, from the slavery of habits, from the slavery of addiction, from the slavery of, of all types of things. And, and that is the beauty of the gospel. And that is why it is so important to not allow for something like technology that can be so wonderful and beautiful and life-giving to become something that controls us through addiction. So the challenge for us this week is to create one boundary around screen time for yourself. Excuse me, let me read that one more time. What is one boundary you can create to help you take back your life from the screen? What is one boundary this week that you can set in place to protect you from giving your life to something that may not give a lot back? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be a part of an amazing community of people where you are at work in our hearts and you are at work in our lives. And Father, you are doing something in this group. 
But God, there are so many things in our world that want to trip us up on our path. There are so many things in our world that want to take away from the life that you have for us. And God, I pray, I pray that as seemingly harmless as technology may seem, Lord, I think the more, the thing we need to pay more attention to is the way that our hearts view technology, the way that our hearts use technology. God, I pray for this group. I don't know what the patterns and the rhythms are of this community and of each individual person, but I know that it can become such an easy thing to give our time to, even inadvertently. And so, God, I pray that this week we would begin to set up these boundaries that help us redirect the time that we give to technology in a useless manner, and we redirect it to more important things. Or maybe it's our family. Maybe it is the relationships in our life. Maybe it's our spouse, God. Maybe it is a hobby that, that we have really enjoyed and that brings life to our soul, God. Whatever it is, God, I pray that this would be an opportunity for us to redirect our path towards something more meaningful. And God, really, that is, that is what you do. You are a path redirector. When we were going one way, God, living life as we desired it, you redirected our path. You gave us an opportunity to be connected to you through your son, Jesus Christ. And all you ever asked was for us to tr trust that you were enough, that your son was enough to satisfy our souls, that your son was enough to give us what we needed throughout the day. God, I pray that if that is the heart of any person today, that if they have not yet trusted in Jesus as their Savior and as their guide, that today would be that day. Today would be the day, Lord, where we place our faith in something greater than ourselves, where our dependence is shifted from our own ambition to the life of someone who sacrificed it all. God, I thank you for what you've done. I pray that you would keep us going strong on this journey of faith and that we would honor you in the process. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.